Well, the believers had gathered in Mary's house in, in Jerusalem to pray. You see, King Herod Agrippa had begun persecuting the church. He was having believers arrested and in some cases uh, killed. James, uh, of James and John fame, had been put to death by the sword. And when Herod saw that action please the Jews, you know, the ones who were opposing this new sect called the Way, well, he had Peter, another sect leader, arrested and in prison. No doubt Peter was up next for execution. So the church gathered in Mary's house to pray. And God answered their prayers. On that very night, Herod was about to bring uh, uh, Peter forward or out, which means he was going to bring him out for a sham of a trial and, and death. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with chains, and there were even soldiers posted outside the door. S suddenly an angel appeared, and light shone in his cell. The, the, the angel smacked Peter on the side and said, hurry, get up, and Peter's chains fell off. The angel said, put on your cloak and your sandals, follow me. And Peter thought he was having a, a vision. The, the guards didn't stir as they passed by. And when they came to a gate, uh, it was opened by itself. They went out, walked along this Jerusalem street, and then the angel well, suddenly disappeared. It was, it was at that moment that Peter realized it wasn't a dream. So he hurried to the house of Mary, and where he knew the church would be gathered. When he knocked, a servant girl, her, her name was Rhoda, came to answer the door. But when she heard Peter's voice, she was so excited, she forgot to open the door and, and ran back to, to tell the believers, you know, the ones who were praying for him. She said, hey, you're not going to believe this, but Peter's at the door. They thought she was nuts. Can't be Peter. You know, he's in jail. I mean, did they forget what they were praying and who they were praying to? Rhoda kept insisting. Finally, someone went and opened the door, and there stood Peter in the flesh. By the way, it, it seems that there were some, some other people at that prayer meeting that, name, that night, names that, that you might know, Saul and, and Barnabas. You see, Saul and Barnabas had been sent by the church up in Antioch in, in Syria uh, to the church in Jerusalem with some famine relief. It was while they were there that, that Peter was arrested. So it was very likely they were actually at this prayer meeting. Another name that you may know was likely there. You see, Mary was, again, the, the owner of the house where they were praying. Her son was no doubt there. His name was John. You know him as John Mark. Oh, and Barnabas and John Mark, they were cousins. And he was a young man, a young believer. He was surely there and witnessed this event with Peter. And apparently he showed some promise. So when Saul and Barnabas left to return to, to Antioch, they took John Mark with them. A little while later, the Holy Spirit said to the church at Antioch, set apart Saul and Barnabas for me. Uh, send them on a missions trip. And so they decided, Saul and Barnabas, to take John Mark with them on this first missionary journey. They traveled from Antioch to Cyprus, to the cities of Salamis and Paphos. Uh, uh, they're right on the island. They're, they shared the gospel. Uh, they left and sailed north to a city named Perga in this region of Pamphylia. And there, well, something happened. We don't know what, but John Mark left and returned to Jerusalem. Some have suggested he didn't have them 
medal necessary to be a, a missionary. Others suggest, well, he just got homesick for mommy. And so he went home. Saul, who by this time started going by his other name, Paul and Barnabas, finished that first trip and returned to Antioch. Hanging out there a little while later, some men from Jerusalem showed up in Antioch and began teaching the believers there, among whom were Gentiles, that they needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. This was a big deal, you see. Uh, is keeping the law along with faith in Jesus, are both of those necessary for salvation? Uh, so they traveled down to Jerusalem to a church council to discuss the issue. It was, of course, decided that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone, adding circumcision or, or anything else for that, for that matter, was not only unnecessary, but even spiritually harmful. At the end of that council, we call it the Jerusalem council, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, let's go back to the churches from that first missionary journey and see how they're doing. Well, Barnabas, you should know that his name means son of encouragement. That's, that's kind of who he was. He was an encourager. He said, hey, great. Look, cousin John Marcus is here. Let's, let's take him. And Paul said, are you out of your mind? Are you kidding me? No way. He deserted us the first time. We're not taking him. And Paul and Barnabas couldn't agree on this. In fact, Luke tells us they had a sharp disagreement. So they split up. Paul took Silas and, and, and went on his second missionary um, journey. And Barnabas, well, he took cousin John Mark and, and they went on their second missionary journey. Let me put up a chart on the screen. I know it's going to look like a lot of words. It's a timeline to, to help you follow along. Uh, we're going to just be focusing on the, the things that are in bold. Uh, Paul and Silas headed out by land from Antioch to those churches in Galatia. They actually went beyond that and planted new churches. But we read that Barnabas and John Mark set sail for Cyprus again. You see, Barnabas was born in Cyprus, so it would be natural that he would go back to his uh, home place. And that's the last we actually hear of Barnabas. Well, until Paul, a short time later, later writes a letter to the Galatian churches, the, the ones that he and Barnabas ha had started there. Paul mentions Barnabas a couple of times, and well, that's it. He disappears from the pages of the New Testament. And as for John Mark, well, he too disappears for a while until after Paul's third missionary journey, and, and, and it was during his first imprisonment in Rome. When Paul was in that first imprisonment, you may remember that he, he wrote four letters. We call them the prison epistles, Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. And those last two, Colossians and, and Philemon, as he's saying goodbye at the end of those letters, we find that Mark is there with Paul in Rome. A little later on that timeline, at the end of his life, when Paul is facing certain execution at the end of his second Roman imprisonment, he wrote a final Letter, Second Timothy, his last letter to Timothy, his son of the faith, and he asked, Timothy, I want you to come and get here before winter, bring me my coat, my, my Bible, and, and bring, Mark, bring Mark with you. Apparently, at some point, Paul and Mark had, had mended fences. But what happened to Mark between that trip with Barnabas to Cyprus until years later when he shows up with Mark in Rome. If you look at the timeline, that's a period of at least 10 years. What happened? Well, we don't 
really know for sure, but we, we do have a couple of hints. One is found in the New Testament, and, and one is found in, in the writings of early church fathers. If you look at, at First Peter, which Peter wrote in the early 60s, at the end of that particular letter, he's sending some greetings, and he says that his son, Mark, was with him. Uh, by, by the way, you should know that there's only one Mark mentioned in the New Testament, and that's, and that's this John Mark. Much like Timothy was Paul's son in the faith, so also Mark appears here to be Peter's son in the faith. It's very possible that as Paul was the, the, the apostle to the Gentiles, Peter was the apostle to the Jews, and, and, and Mark came to faith in Christ through Peter's ministry. It's possible even that living right there in Jerusalem that he had been discipled by Peter. And not only that, if, if you look at those early church fathers, early church fathers, by the way, are, are those church leaders right after the times of the apostles, there is a unanimous understanding that Mark, well, that he hung out with Peter. They were buds. He, he, he heard, Mark would then have heard Peter's preaching, and he would have heard his personal testimony about, and the stories of of his time uh, being one of the 12 with Jesus. In fact, one early church father named Papias, who lived from 60 to 130 A.D., that means he was very early, um, wrote this. This, this also, the presbyter, that, that's referring to a guy named John the Elder. We don't know if that's the Apostle John or not. could be. But, but the, the presbyter used to say, Mark, indeed, who became the interpreter of Peter, wrote accurately, as far as he remembered them, the things said or done by the Lord, but, but not, however, in order. For he had neither heard the Lord nor been his personal follower, but at a later stage, as I said, he followed Peter. So that Mark committed no error in writing certain matters, just as he remembered them, for he had one object only in view, that is to leave, nothing, uh, to leave out nothing of the things which he had heard you know, from Peter, and to include no false statements among them. So, so, so Papias, a very early church father, you notice he was born in 60, right? Before Peter and, and Paul and, and John Mark had, had died, uh, right after the time of Jesus, tells us that Mark followed Peter, that he had learned from Peter, and even that he even wrote down what Peter said about this about his time with Jesus. So here's my question. Where did Mark write these things down? It is the unanimous testimony of the early church and early church fathers that John Mark is none other than the author of the gospel according to Mark, which I, I, I guess could really make it the gospel according to Peter since they are based on Peter's memoirs. Now, it is true, the gospel, according to Mark, is, is technically anonymous, as are all four gospels. Some have suggested that the young man that we read about in Mark chapter 14 that we'll get to in a few years, um, who ran away naked uh, from the Garden of Gethsemane was John Mark. We'll talk about that when we get there. It's pure conjecture. But, but, but let me be clear on this. The early church and, and the early church fathers all accepted that, that Mark was the author of this second gospel. Here are some other names from that time that you might recognize. Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, and Jerome. All of them attributed the writing of Mark to Mark. Uh, by the way, it was uh, early in the second 
century that the Gospels uh, were circulated with titles. You see, the, the four Gospels had been written early in the, first, or in the mid-first century, and, and as they were being circulated, you needed to be able to distinguish them, so they, they would add titles, the Gospel according to Matthew, and the Gospel according to, to Mark. Every copy that we have of Mark, every early copy, without exception, has as its title, the gospel according to Mark. You see, there never really has been, I don't care what you hear at school, there never really has been a question as to the authorship of this second gospel. But, but, but when did John Mark write it? Again, with some minor discrepancies, most agree he likely wrote the gospel sometime maybe late 50s or early to mid 60s. The, the, the only issue is, did he write the gospel before Peter died or after? That's where the disagreement comes. Some say that he wrote it before Peter died, and then in fact, Peter authorized this gospel. We're only talking about a few years difference here. Uh, Peter died around 64 or 65 A.D. under, now get this, 64 or 65 A.D. under the Neronian persecutions. You see, those persecutions began after the great fire of Rome in 64 A.D. and started, most historians say, by Nero himself, and he needed to find a scapegoat, so he, he blamed it on the, this new sect called Christians and began persecuting them. So Peter died under the Neronian persecution, 64, 65, as Paul would do in 66 AD. I want you to think about that. When Paul asked Timothy to bring John Mark with him, it's very likely that Peter had already died and Mark had already written this gospel. Here's the point I don't want you to miss. Mark wrote this gospel right before or during the Neronian persecution, likely as an encouragement to his readers to, to suffer for the gospel story. Well, just like Jesus suffered, just like Peter suffered, and just like Paul would suffer. You, you, you see, the suffering Savior is a major theme in this particular book, the opposition against Jesus arises, you're not going to believe this, arises as early as Mark chapter 3. Jesus had healed a man uh, on the Sabbath, and that kind of irritated the Pharisees and Herodians, and they began conspiring together, which is significant. They didn't like each other, but they began conspiring together as to how they might destroy Jesus. Suffering Savior. You see, as we have seen, suffering and persecution has always has, all, has always been a way of life for followers of Jesus. Always. It should come as no surprise to us. And as his readers were facing opposition, Mark writes to encourage him. He says, look, Jesus suffered too. Now, if, if Mark wrote to encourage his readers to endure in the face of suffering... Look at the life of Jesus. Who were then his readers? This is another very important question. You see, the Neronian persecutions were largely centered right there uh, in Rome, not exclusively, but largely in Rome. And as, as we read Mark's gospel, we, we're going to find some things. We're going to find that, that, that Mark explains some Jewish customs, which he wouldn't have to do if he was writing to Jews. So most agree that he was writing to Gentiles. In fact, we find that he translates some Aramaic expressions. Aramaic is the, the language of the Jews at this time. He wouldn't have done that if he was writing to, to Jews. He, he explains some 
Jewish customs, and, and he quotes infrequently from the Old Testament. Now, not only that, we're going to find that he used what are called Latinisms, that is, Latin terms that, that would be understood by Latin readers. Add to that the fact that those same early church fathers said that he wrote to believers in Italy. Most agree that Mark was writing to Roman Christians. Mark was writing to encourage the church at Rome. Some most suggest he even wrote from Rome. Now, I'm sure that by now in your Bible reading, most of you have noticed that there are four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew and, and John, we get, they were disciples. They were two of the, of the 12. Mark, we see, got his story from Peter, who was also one of the 12. Luke was a physician who was also a very meticulous historian and researched carefully what he wrote. Okay, so that's the four gospels. But as you read the gospels, you, you, you begin to notice some things. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are are quite similar. In fact, you're doing your Bible reading, you finish Matthew, you go into Mark, you go, that seems like I just read this. And then you do Luke and it seems similar. Again, in fact, that's why they're called synoptic gospels. That means to be seen together. Now, now a full 90% of what is in John isn't in the synoptic gospels. You get some new, new stuff. But, but again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are quite similar. In fact, it's been noted that only three stories in Mark are not found in Matthew and, and Luke. R really? And so this begs a couple more important questions. First, why three very similar um, Gospels? Isn't that, a, isn't that a bit of overkill? Well, uh, while they are similar, it has been rightly noted that there is a different focus to, to each one of these Gospels. Uh, Matthew was clearly written to the Jews to present Jesus as the king of the Jews. You see, if Jesus was going to be the Messiah, he needed to come from the line of David. And so Matthew begins with what? The genealogy of Jesus that goes right through David. Mark, as I just said, was clearly written to Gentiles, Roman believers likely, to present Jesus as the suffering Savior, the suffering, in fact, the suffering Son of God. Luke was clearly written to, it was written to an individual named Theophilus, clearly written to present Jesus as the perfect son of man, to declare his perfect humanity. And then John was clearly written to present Jesus as, as God in the flesh, to declare his perfect deity. And so each one of them has a, a specific focus to, to include Mark. By the way, in the early church, they often referred to the gospel, singular. Hardly ever did the early church writers call them, use the plural, the gospels. Well, why do I say that? Because I want you to understand that there is one gospel. There is one gospel recorded by four authors in four different versions, if you will, but only one gospel. But in addition to why three similar gospel accounts, it, it begs the further question as to which gospel came first. You, you see, some of the wording is exactly the same. 
which means they had the same sources or one gospel was available to the others. In fact, it was the position of scholars through the centuries, really up until about the 19th century, that Matthew and Luke preceded Mark, that Matthew had what's called the priority. Matthew came first, and that Mark, are you ready, was just a poor copy of the other two synoptic gospels. As such, it was largely ignored. Mark was often criticized, seldom valued. You just read, Matthew, what do I need to read Mark for? One German author suggested that Mark was, quote, neither a historian nor an author. He assembled his material in the simplest manner thinkable. That was not positive. One French commentator wrote, it is settled. The author of Mark was a clumsy writer, unworthy of mention in any history of literature. That's nice. In the early days of the church, you should know that Matthew was quoted most often, and then John, a distant third was Luke, but hardly ever Mark. Who needs Mark? Even St. Augustine, the great fifth century theologian said, Mark imitated Matthew like a lackey and is regarded as his abbreviator. His abbreviator because, well, you know, you look at it. Matthew has 28 chapters. Mark has 16. Much shorter, actually fewer stories. And Mark's stories are actually a little longer and carry much detail like the detail of an eyewitness as if he got it from, I don't know, Peter. Matthew had the priority for use in discipleship. If you were going to disciple someone in the early days, you went right to the Gospel of Matthew. Luke served as a great companion to to Matthew. John had all of that material that Matthew and Luke didn't have. And Mark, well, really, again, who needs it? It was actually seen as a poorly written work. Mark was clumsy and lacked any artistry. He's terrible. Why read it? I'm not even sure how he got it in the Bible. That's why I covered Matthew and John first. But then something happened. As scholars continued to study it, the history of the books, the early church authors, and it, it became actually quite clear that, that Mark, not Matthew, that Mark was written first, that it had what's called the priority. And then suddenly Mark stood on its own. Now, this does not devalue Matthew and Luke, who probably had copies of of Mark, but it certainly raised the value of Mark. All of a sudden, the one author I had says it became a celebrity overnight. People began reading and studying and appreciating the marvelous literary value of Mark. It went from a seemingly unnecessarily poorly written copy of the Gospels to a beautiful jewel in the canon of Scripture as it has always been. It's a great book. See, Mark writes with a certain intentionality. I can't say that word. It's quite vivid. He keeps you on the edge of your seat. He does that on purpose. For example, he uses that word. You ever read Mark before? He uses the word immediately some 40 or 42 times to carry the action along. He starts many of his sentences, if you're reading in the Greek, he starts many of the sentences with the word and. (laughs) Hardly gives you time to catch your breath. Actually, it would be more of an action book than some dragging drama, and I get that. Who would not rather watch action than drama? Uh, There's actually less teaching uh, uh, of Jesus in Mark than in Matthew, 
Luke or John, although Mark has his teaching as well, most notably in chapters 4 and, and, and chapter 13. But, 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 but the point is you get carried along with the fast-paced nature of the book. We learn more about Jesus and what he does than in what he says. In fact, I want to tell you that, that it is suggested that at this particular time in history in the Mediterranean area, between 10 and 20 percent of the people were literate. Mark was written to be read out loud and to keep you in focus and keep you enraptured about this person of, of Jesus. As I did the reading this week and I, I read that, I, I read the book out loud to myself. It was really cool. I would encourage you to do that. Make no mistake about it. He, he, he writes about Jesus who is the central character. Every story in the book is about Jesus except two. Two about John the Baptist, who after all is the forerunner to Jesus. While it took us a full four years, some of you may remember this, a full four years to get through Matthew. My goodness, this thing's so fast-paced. We might get through it in like, I don't know, two years. <laughs> let, me, let, me give you the, let me give you the outline of the book before we look briefly at verse one today, and you go, well, no wonder it's going to take us so long. You're going to cover one verse. Yeah. Okay. Let's look at the outline. We're going to see Mark's uh, prologue. That's kind of his introduction that sets the stage in verses 1 to 13 of chapter 1 and middle of chapter 1 through the middle of chapter 8 is the Galilean ministry. In fact, it's very interesting. Mark only has Jesus traveling to Jerusalem one time in, in, in that Galilean ministry. And in fact, one, one thing, while opposition is arising, one thing that you find is that his popularity is, is, is growing. He's becoming more and more popular. And, and, it, and it rises and rises until it gets to chapter 8. And chapter 8, Jesus and his disciples are up in Caesarea Philippi. And he asks them that question, who do people say that, that I am? And they gave him all kinds of answers. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter's the one that answers, is you are, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, you're right. Now we're going to head south um, to Jerusalem. In fact, that's the next section, mid uh, chapter 8 to the end of chapter 10. And this is the journey. And we see opposition begin to rise because Jesus told them up in Caesarea Philippi, you're right, I'm the Christ, and we're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. It's the reason that I came. Remember Mark 10, 45? You know that. He came to give his life a ransom for many. And, and so then we get to Jerusalem, Mark 11 to 13, and that's the Jerusalem ministry, not quite as positive as the Galilean ministry. In fact, there's lots of opposition happening as the religious leaders begin to oppose him, and he starts sparring with them. And then in... Chapter 14, we enter the passion narrative. It takes us through chapter 16, the death, the burial, and, and then the resurrection of Jesus. This is, this is, it's, it's a great book with a great intention, intentionality as he takes us to the heights, to, to the low, back to the highest high. Let's take a quick look at verse 1 as it serves as a, as a title to either the prologue, those first 13 verses, or the whole book, or maybe even both. It's interesting for those of you English majors here, this is going to drive you absolutely nuts. Verse 1 uh, ends with a period, but there's no verb in it. It just re simply reads, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Does what? See, it's a title. 
The beginning. Let's look at the major terms here, all right? The, the beginning. And we remember, hmm, that sounds familiar. Both Genesis and John use that word in the first verse of their works in a little different way. In Genesis, Moses writes, in the beginning, God created. And then John reminds us that in the beginning, the word was there, meaning at the beginning, when God created everything, the word was there. And in fact, as we read the rest of the New Testament, we find that the word, who is Jesus, was actually the primary creator. But now Mark refers to a different beginning, the beginning of the gospel, because you see, after God created, it didn't take us any time at all to mess things up. We needed a new beginning. And so it doesn't take much imagination to see Mark referring to a new creation, a new beginning brought about by the work of Christ. In the beginning, God created. Now in this new beginning, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, because we messed it up, we needed something new. Enter the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the next term, the beginning of the gospel, most of us know well by now that word gospel, it literally means good news. It was used at this particular time uh, to signal, for example, a great military victory. Hey, I have good news. I have the gospel. We won. Or in 9 BC, it was used to speak. Uh, he had been born earlier, but by, in 9 BC, it began to be used. The gospel began to be used of the birth of one Caesar Augustus. This is good news, is it really? The beginning of the gospel. It wasn't until later that that word came to be used to refer to the four gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But I want you to note that all four of those tell the story of the life and death of Jesus, the gospel. That's the good news, the birth of Jesus, his incarnation, and then his death, his work on the cross for us. Mark gives us the, 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 work, the title of this work, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And notice it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we often say the gospel of Matthew or the gospel of Mark. That's not actually quite right. It's actually uh, those, those early titles that were sent around so that we could distinguish them. It was, the it was actually the gospel according to Matthew. <laughs> it's the gospel according to Mark. You see, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus, of course, is the name given to the son of Mary and presumably Joseph, Joseph, as instructed by the angel, you will call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. Because you see, the name Jesus is the, is the Greek derivative of the Old Testament name Joshua. Uh, Joshua literally means Yahweh or, or the Lord saves. So G Jesus was actually a common name in the, in the first century, but it's an appropriate name for the one who would come to, to save. Jesus, the one who would save his people. And we don't use that name much anymore to name our, our, our children because there's only one Lord who saves. Christ um, is a title referring to the truth that Jesus was the long-awaited and promised Messiah, the anointed one sent from God to accomplish his redemptive purposes. But notice, please notice, he's not just the Christ he is the Son of God. 
Mark uses a number of titles for Jesus, four most notably, Son of God, Son of Man, Christ, and, and Lord. But his favorite, bar none, his favorite is Son of God. Don't miss that Mark intends this to be a clear declaration of his deity. He is, Jesus is the very Son of God. This is a thread that actually runs through the gospel according to Mark. Mark calls him the Son of God in that title. Before we get to the end of the first chapter at the baptism of Jesus, God calls him, calls Jesus his beloved son. In Mark 3 and in Mark 5, the, the demons are falling for him, crying out, you are the son of God. And in Mark 9 at the transfiguration, God gets in the act again and calls him his beloved son. In Mark 14, the high priest asks him, tell us, Plainly, are you the Christ? Or excuse me, actually he says, are you the son of the blessed? Are you the son of God? And Jesus answers, I am. In Mark 14, finally in Mark 15, the centurion standing at the foot of the cross looks up and says, surely this was the son of God. Mark clearly wants us to understand that Jesus is the son of God. He wants us... Make no mistake about it, he wants us to understand that Jesus was clearly divine. He was God in the flesh. He wants us to understand that by the things that he does. He does things that only God can do, like forgive sins. Who can do that but God? Exactly. Uh, he cures the most serious of illnesses. He exercises supremacy over the forces of nature. <laughs> he calms storms, walks on water. And he, he wants us to understand these over the forces of evil. They fall at his face. You are the son of God. Shh. Jesus is truly the son of God, God in the flesh. Many other titles that we're going to see through the book. In fact, Jesus' favorite title for himself is son of man. What does that mean? Now that speaks of his humanity. It speaks of the fact that he suffers in the flesh as the son of man. Because you see, in addition to being divine, he took on flesh to die for sinners. And, and Mark describes Jesus' humanness more than any other author. He suffers. There are other important things that we're going to see through the book, like the disciples' consistent lack of understanding, uh, what my professor in seminary called uh, the dullness of the disciples, the so-called messianic secret. You are the, shh, what's that? And then we're going to see the great faith of, of those who were not supposed to have great faith, like the Gentiles, as opposed to those who should know who he was. And those are the insiders, insiders, outsiders, insiders like his family and his disciples who should be figuring this out. And then the religious leadership. Mm. And then there's those outsiders like the centurion, the Syrophoenician woman, a leper, that's an outsider. They began to figure out who he was and exercise great faith. Through all of this, you see, we see a clear challenging, forceful Christology, and a very clear and challenging and strong call to discipleship. You see, if you want to really call Jesus your Lord, then you're going to have to follow Him. You're going to have to take up your cross daily. You're going to have to suffer. It's 
theme that runs through the New Testament. You see, we just finished it in 2 Timothy, and when we finish Mark, we're going to go into the book of Hebrews, and guess what Hebrews is about? <laughs> Suffering. And Jesus is portrayed as one who challenges, confounds, and sometimes breaks conventional stereotypes, whether those stereotypes be religious or social or political, and it costs him, and it's not what the readers expect. It's a great book. I, I, I know this morning has been a lot of, of lecture. I believe that it's important to do this necessary background foundation work as we, whenever we get ready to jump into a new book. But here's what I want you to consider this morning. Here's, here's what I want you to consider this morning as we close. There is no more important book that we study as a church than a gospel. I love it every time we jump into a gospel because it tells us again the good news of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. I want you to be encouraged again by the life, death, burial, and resurrection of your great Savior. Let's stand for prayer.